You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1944th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 31st of August 2023. The editor of this edition is Sue Aitchison, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are David Palmer and Christian Jenner. And we should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And we're going to start with the headlines... Controversy over £320,000 refugee resettlement plans. Woman slams mental health trust's toxic hierarchy. Ambulance trust shows improvement. MPs urge supermarkets to help online shoppers choose British foods. A Suffolk Council's plans to spend £320,000 to resettle refugees has sparked controversy. West Suffolk Council has revealed its plans to spend £320,000 on temporary housing to resettle Afghans and Ukrainians. The purchase would be made with the help of the government's £938,600 Local Authority Housing Fund, the LAHF, and will be used initially for Afghan families leaving temporary hotel accommodation. This means the grant has uh, has been made available to fund 40% of the purchase, or £112,000, the maximum available for each unit, with the council picking up the remaining 60% of the bill at about £188,000. The council hopes the new property will greatly help in the task of reducing the need for expensive bed and breakfast accommodation, retaining more money for other investments. In total, it is expected that the purchase will save around £35,000 in bed and breakfast costs each year. Councillor Richard O'Driscoll, the Cabinet Member for Housing, said this is a government scheme which provides funding specifically to help councils meet the issue of housing Afghan and Ukrainian refugees. This provides a council with a good way of buying much-needed temporary accommodation, which also frees up other properties. This comes as the Council continues to experience rising case numbers of families and individuals presenting as homeless as a result of the cost of living crisis. Questions have been raised as to what impact the purchase of the property would have on the state of the Council's finances. Councillor O'Driscoll, however, has reassured that this spending will have no impact on how services are delivered across the district. He said the council maintains a fund to be used to seize on these opportunities, which means we are in a good position to bid and benefit from such national schemes. At the same time, it reduces the current financial pressure on the authority through the cost of bed and breakfast and supplies. An income which means the housing can continue to be used when its current need finishes. Nevertheless, Councillor Nick Clark, the Conservative Group leader, believes there should be more scrutiny paid to this spending, as the money could be used for other things. Because the total spending is below the £500,000 threshold, this means approval can be made by the relevant portfolio holders and not have to go through a full council meeting. 
Although this purchase is aimed at Afghan and Ukrainian families, the temporary accommodation can also be used for general use. The council has also indicated it expects the purchase of the property to produce a 16% return on investment after borrowing costs. As it stands, the proposal is an in-principle decision as a property has not yet been identified and has been sent to councillors who will have a chance to speak their mind before its decision on September the 20th. A Suffolk woman whose son took his own life has described a mental health trust's toxic hierarchy as an absolute disgrace. Pippa Travis Williams accused senior management at Norfolk and Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, NSFT, of sweeping facts and figures about the deaths of the trust's patients under the carpet, after criticism of bosses was omitted from a controversial report. An investigation by the BBC found that many critical phrases had been removed from the review, carried out independently by auditors Grant Thornton, when it was eventually made public. The early draft of the report contained several pieces of fierce criticism, describing the Trust's governance as poor, weak and inadequate, while the phrase large was used to describe the number of deaths within a month of discharge. There were also references to gaps in mortality data, while the draft of the report, titled Forever Gone, also referred to some staff reporting a culture of fear at the Trust. However, the final draft made no reference to any of these concerns. Pippa's son Henry was found dead in 2016, just days after he was found near a bridge and admitted to Wedgwood House in Bury St Edmunds. She said, I am not at all surprised with the headlines regarding NSFT. Since losing my only son, aged 21, as a result of NSFT negligence in 2016, for which they admitted liability, things have gone from bad to worse. This broken mental health system, sadly and tragically for many families, has resulted in far too many unnecessary preventable deaths, despite all my attempts to implement positive changes. My heart goes out to all the families who have lost loved ones at the hand of the Trust. As for the toxic hierarchy of senior management who sweep it under the carpet and hide the facts and figures, they are an absolute disgrace and should be held accountable. When will lessons be learned? However, Stuart Richardson, NSFT's chief executive, said none of the recommendations had changed from the early draft of the report to the final published version. He added, As is common practice, we responded to requests from the auditors to check the factual accuracy of their early draft report and to provide further information. This is a standard process to make sure that such reports are evidence-based and that content accurately reflects the situation relating to the data being reviewed. We have been open and honest about the failings highlighted in this report and are committed to bringing about the improvements that our service users and staff deserve. A spokesperson for Grant Thornton described the report as an independent, robust and thorough assessment of the historic matters at the Trust, hoping that it would prompt significant changes to ensure greater transparency and compliance in future. He said... It is standard practice to share an initial draft of a report to ensure it is a fair and accurate reflection of the processes reviewed, 
and that the findings from the report result in improvement and change where it is required. It is not uncommon for findings and language to be refined before being finalised. After the initial draft, the engagement team at the Trust changed, who then provided further information around controls and internal processes of which we were previously unaware. Whilst the overall findings of the report did not change, the new evidence did adjust our assessment of significance in some areas. In addition, wording changed in some areas to highlight areas of good practice that were brought to our attention and which we believed could be broadened out to help resolve issues. Improvements in safeguarding and allegation management have been noted by inspectors at the region's Ambulance Trust three years after being placed in special measures. In 2020, the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, uncovered bullying and sexual harassment at the East of England Ambulance Service Trust, the EEAST. The watchdog took enforcement action, which included seven conditions on the Trust's registration, placing it in special measures. The latest improvements have been called a step in the right direction by the Trust's chief executive, who added there was much still to do. Over the last three years, under a new leadership team, the Trust has worked through an improvement plan to strengthen policies and processes, with progress reported to the CQC on a monthly basis. Recently, two more conditions relating to safeguarding and allegation management were lifted from its licence, meaning, after a further two were lifted in February this year, that there are now just three remaining conditions, which it is hoped will be lifted in the near future. The CQC recognised that the Trust has expanded its safeguarding team and strengthened policies, HR processes and training. An improvement in the way allegations are handled was also recognised, including pre-action review meetings in employee relations cases and training for managers investigating allegations to improve the quality of decision-making. The Trust has also been recognised for its work in expanding the visibility of the freedom to speak up. Guardian Tom uh, Abel, Chief Executive of EAST, said, This recognition by our regulators, the CQC, is another important step in the right direction for the Trust, and I would like to thank everyone involved in strengthening the systems and processes we have around safeguarding and how we handle allegations. We have made much progress since I joined the Trust over two years ago, when I made, made clear it would take time to tackle long-standing cultural and organisational issues. We know that there is still much to do to reach our goal of making EEAST a great place to work, volunteer and learn, and providing an excellent, services, uh, excellent service to our communities, which we are committed to doing. MPs have called on supermarkets to support East Anglia's farmers and food producers by making it easier for online shoppers to buy British. More than a 100 politicians have signed a letter to retailers, urging them to highlight homegrown food and drink by including a Buy British section on their online shopping pages. The signatories include Central Suffolk and North Ipswich MP Dr Dan Poulter, who said this would encourage customers to identify and choose seasonal local produce while supporting local farmers.
He added, such support would be vital in a year when farmers face an expensive harvest after the hottest June on record and a wet July which delayed field operations and added grain drying costs on top of the high prices for fuel, fertiliser and energy. I'm pleased to have played a key role in coordinating this important initiative, said Dr Poulter. I talk to farmers in Suffolk regularly and they tell me time and again the best way we can support them is to simply buy British. I know the people of central Suffolk and North Ipswich want to back our local farmers and food producers and they want to understand more about where their food comes from and how it is produced. This simple change on a web page helps to ensure homegrown food is easily identifiable and something I wholeheartedly support. Minette Batters, President of the National Farmers Union, NFU, welcomed the campaign. She said, We have been asking retailers to commit to signposting British produce for a number of years, so it's great to see MPs and their constituencies getting behind the idea of a Buy British tab online. We know from our own independent survey that 86% of the public want to buy more British food, but it is often tricky to determine what products are produced in the UK, and this simple change would help shoppers to do that. M moving on to general news, um, almost 500 homes complete with a new re relief road could be built west of Bury St Edmunds if fresh plans submitted to a council are given the go-ahead. Applicant Pigeonberry West Limited first submitted proposals for 485 homes on land off Newmarket Road in 2019, but concerns were raised around the access roads, which included roundabout access onto Newmarket Road and a part relief road onto Fornham Lane, as well as the green buffer and the total of number of homes included. In a new application before West Suffolk Council, the applicant is once again seeking permission for up to 485 homes, but has made changes to the planned relief road, including roundabout site access on Newmarket Road and Westley Road, as well as a new priority junction from the relief road onto Hill Road. The plans seek full permission for the relief road and outline permission for the homes, which would be between two and three storeys and of various sizes and tenures, including family housing. The site, which is located on the western edge of Bury St Edmunds, just 200 metres south of Junction 42 of the A14, would be complete with open space, including play areas and landscaping. Drainage basins would be constructed next to the relief road, and there would be a new pedestrian and cycle route uh, onto Oliver Road and cycle connections onto Newmarket Road. The scheme is on land allocated for residential development. Original proposals included the provision of land for a sub-regional health campus to enable the relocation of West Suffolk Hospital, but in 2021 the hospital announced it had purchased Hardwick Manor to the south of their existing site with the intention of moving there instead. A statement to West Suffolk Council on behalf of the applicant said, For the purposes of clarification, land for the former health campus site does not form part of this planning application, although the proposals ensure that it doesn't pre prejudice any future development of the site should any future proposals come forward. They added that the scheme would bring key benefits to Bury St Edmunds and Westley, including the delivery of market and affordable housing. We'll be back. 
That's the message from the shocked manager of a town centre waffle house after a fire broke out at the venue last week. Police and fire crews were called to Casper's Desserts on Corn Hill on the Sunday the 20th of August. A fire is understood to have started when an ice cream dispenser caught light. The interior of the eatery, which employs 16 people, has been smoke damaged throughout. Repair work is underway, backed by the Dessert House franchise, which has eateries across the UK. Adam Nesbitt, Casper's operations manager at the Berry franchise, said, We are just in shock. A piece of machinery caught fire and the, the restaurant was evacuated. It's badly smoke damaged throughout. We don't have a time frame, but I would like to reassure customers we will be back. Two engines from Berry attended the blaze along with police. Suffolk Fire Services said the ground floor was well alight when they arrived, with smoke spreading to the second floor. No ambulance was called, but staff members were taken to hospital to be treated for breathing in smoke, the service said. The fire was extinguished by 10.30pm and crews set about ventilating the building and those nearby. The area around the shop was cordoned off and nearby roads were initially closed. There were no reported injuries. Firefighters used a hose reel jet to tackle the blaze. A statement on Casper's Facebook page states the restaurant will be closed until further notice. The dessert house sells ice creams, gelatos, waffles, crepes, milkshakes, smoothies and sundaes. Customers also expressed their shock at the fire, wishing the staff well. Neighbouring bakery Greg's has also been closed since the fire and Greg's has been approached for comment. A very rare clock is back on display in Bury St Edmunds the town in which it was invented, replacing one stolen by burglars more than 30 years ago. The pyramidal skeleton clock was invented by John Pace, who worked out of Abigate Street from 1823 to 1855. Moises Hall Museum, run by West Suffolk Council, has secured a John Pace pyramidal skeleton clock, believed to be one of only eight in existence, to include as part of the Gershom Parkington collection on display. The purchase has been made possible using £3,000 from the Gershom Parkington bequest and thanks to help from the clock's previous owner, a Mr W Barnard. In 1952, Frederick Gershom Parkington left his rare collection of clocks to the town in memory of his son who had died during World War II. Funds were also left for their upkeep and purchases of clocks to add to the collection. The following year, 1953, saw a museum open on Angel Hill where the pieces were displayed. However, that museum was targeted three times by burglars. A Pace pyramidal skeleton clock was stolen from the collection in the last burglary in 1991. Councillor Ian Shipp, Cabinet Member for Leisure and Culture, said... After all these years and previous attempts by others, we've finally been able to reintroduce one of these magnificent clocks back into the Gershom Parkington collection, which we are proud to display at Moises Hall. A Bury St Edmunds-based organisation, which has supported thousands of families since its foundation 40 years ago, is calling for the community to support its milestone year celebrations. 
St. Nicholas Hospice Care was founded on August the 24th, 1983 to provide vital services to people in West Suffolk and Thetford facing death, dying and grief. Now, in its milestone year, the hospice is thanking the community for its support and raising awareness of end-of-life care and the support it offers patients, families and friends, from specialist medical care to bereavement support and practical help. Linda McInhill, hospice chief executive, said St Nick's was born out of the belief there should be something better for those facing terminal illness and their loved ones. Those words, spoken 40 years ago by our founder, the Reverend Canon Richard Norburn MBE, remain true to this day and are at the heart of everything we strive to do. St Nick's has been shaped by so many compassionate people who have helped build our legacy along the way and we want to use our 40th year to recognise those wonderful people. Nobody knows what the next 40 years will bring, but with an ageing population and far greater demand for our services, we will need to step up to the mark and support even more people in the coming years to ensure no one in our community faces death and loss on their own. We're proud to have been part of our community for 40 years. We've cared for you and your loved ones, and you have cared for us. Together, let's celebrate 40 years of caring. From now until August 2024, the hospice is organising a range of events, including fundraising opportunities and ways to remember those who have died to mark the anniversary. It also plans to tell stories of those who have supported the charity or been supported by it. The Paris and Edmonds charity shop has marked its 10th anniversary with a special celebration for its volunteers. The Salvation Army shop on Cornhill celebrated a decade on Tuesday and thanked customers with a 10% discount. Manager Lisa Hampton, who has worked at the charity shop for just over a year, said, It's great. It's been 10 years. Some shops aren't surviving and we're still going strong. All our customers, old and new, are fantastic and I'd like to thank them. I look forward to seeing them for the next 10 years. Lisa organised a spread and a special cake with the Salvation Army logo to thank volunteers, some of whom have disabilities or learning needs. Anyone interested in volunteering can speak to Lisa in the shop. British Sugar has announced this autumn's factory start dates for its 2023-24 sugar beet processing campaign. The Bury St Edmunds site in Suffolk will be the first of the company's four factories to open for deliveries from East Anglia's sugar beet growers on September the 4th. It will be followed by Newark in Nottinghamshire on September the 11th and then at two Norfolk factories, at Whissington in West Norfolk on September the 21st and finally at Cantley on the banks of the River Yare on October the 9th. British Sugar Agriculture Director Dan Green said, We look forward to working with growers, harvesters and hauliers over the 2023-24 season and wish everyone across the British beet sugar industry all the best for a safe and successful campaign. The owners of a Suffolk distillery will bring Stowmarket residents the best local spirits at their new bar when it launches next week. Tom Mills and Ryan Luke, who took over the heart of Suffolk Distillery, are now launching their own venue, joining Langham's Cafe in the mid-Suffolk town to serve their best products. The family distillery was founded by husband and wife team Martin and Karen Luke in February 2018 
turning their dreams into reality. Langham's Wine Bar, by Heart of Suffolk Distillery, located in Marketplace, will have the big launch of the Wine and Cocktail Bar on Friday, September the 1st. Mr Mills said, We'll start from 5pm on Friday, serving our guests three mini cocktails on arrival. Then we'll welcome our first customers with meat and cheese boards, all from local suppliers, as well as other local foods. Our idea for the bar is to serve drinks that are Suffolk supplied. All of the spirits are made by our distillery, which has been growing for the last few years, expanding from a small family business to a big enterprise. But we're still very much in the kind of family backing. All our gins are named after family members. We decide that it's time to push them out wider into Suffolk, so we are opening the bar in Stowmarket, as well as an event space next to our distillery. The owners added that their goal in business is to expand their brand presence and also help local businesses. Mr Mills added, We're aiming to put lots of different local suppliers in our place and sell their products. I think it's really good for local people to eat and drink local things, and we also want to give Stowmarket something extra that it doesn't already have. The bar will be organising many community events, including live music evenings, game nights and weekly quizzes. The customers will also be able to meet the local suppliers and get to know their products. Sparks were flying as namesakes gathered for the first time in Rattleston last week, leaving organisers on a high. The unusual reunion of people with the surname Sparks, Spark or Sparks with an E, was inspired by a Yorkshire man's quest to unearth his family history. Stuart Riding of Halifax began researching his family tree a decade ago, starting on his paternal side, before his late mother Kathleen Sparks asked him to do the same for her side of the family. And so began his sparky journey, which led to his discovery Rattleston was the ancestral home for many people with the name Spark and Sparks and Sparks with an ES. After visiting the village with his cousin Jean Sparks last year and receiving a fantastic welcome, Rattleston Pavilion was chosen to host the family reunion. Organised by the Sparks, Spark, Sparks Family Research Group, the event was attended by more than a hundred people who enjoyed viewing displays of old photographs, maps and documents. There's an overwhelming sense of satisfaction and success. We had so many people there and so many positive comments, said Stuart. With so much research on display, there was a bit of an information overload. I don't think anyone walked away not knowing more than when they arrived. The organisers and I are just left reeling from the high of it. Where do we go from here and how do we beat that? With more than 16,000 people in the Sparks family tree and other offshoots to connect, Stuart believes there is potential for more events and research. Family from across Suffolk, Norfolk and Essex joined the event, with Stuart believing his family may have travelled the furthest. But the biggest thing to come from it was seeing people connect. There were family members who hadn't seen each other in years, or some who had corresponded previously but never met face to face, said Stuart. It was just beyond all expectations. A site lost charity is looking for Bury St Edmunds residents for temporary homes for its trainee guide dogs in the town. Volunteer Fosterers for Guide Dogs provides places for dogs on evenings and weekends as they complete the latter stages of their training, 
with all costs covered. The fostering is for dogs around 17 months old for between 6 and 8 weeks before the dog moves to the final stages of their training with someone living with sight loss. Chantal Marie, guide dog mobility specialist responsible for training guide dogs in the area, said... Becoming a volunteer fosterer for our charity is a great way to experience having a dog at home without the full-time commitment of having a pet dog. We wouldn't be able to keep our guide dog service running without the support we receive from our amazing fosterers. So if you think you can help us, please do get in touch. Applicants would ideally have a maximum of one cat or dog at home and no children under 12. If you could provide a temporary home for a trainee guide dog, Call the charity on 0800-781-1444. The Dad's Army Museum in Thetford had a very special guest join them at the weekend to loan a very special pair of glasses for display. Robbie McNabb, a friend of Arthur Lowe, who played Captain Mannering in the highly popular BBC sitcom, visited last week to talk about his time with the much-loved actor and his family. Mr McNabb also presented the museum's own Captain Mannering, Mick Whitman, with a pair of spectacles worn by Warmington-on-Sea's finest for the site to use in a future display. The museum is open every Saturday from late March until the end of November, 10am to 3pm. It's also open Tuesdays during the Norfolk school holidays and Tuesdays in July, August and September. Now we're going to move on to our letters and the first one has a heading We're lucky to have West Suffolk Hospital and it's from Marion Lee via email. I recently underwent a hip replacement operation at West Suffolk Hospital, the WSH and want to express my thanks for the care received and my admiration for the entire team involved. From porters through to my consultant every member of staff was not only highly efficient but also kind, caring and never too busy to answer questions or to take a moment for a chat and a laugh. It's really easy to complain about waiting lists or less than perfect service, and I did have to wait and had a postponement, but it is important to remember just how fortunate we are to have this wonderful resource at the heart of our community, and it's all due to dedicated people working in very difficult circumstances. Thank you so much, WSH. And here is a letter headlined, Wary of Law Change Idea. Regarding Charlotte Jenkins' letter concerning Lucy Letby not attending sentencing, I totally agree that it was disgraceful she didn't go into court. What she did was evil and beyond comprehension. I am glad that she will spend the rest of her life in jail. However, the law being chained to force someone into court for sentencing is something to be wary of, in my view. According to prison officers, it would take at least six people to bring the suspect to court, especially if they resist. Are you going to have them dragged, kicking and screaming into court to face sentencing? What about the effect on those people in the courtroom? The American system tried this, and the suspect ended up shouting obscenities at the victim's family. What if Letby shouted something that distressed the baby's families even more? Are we going to go down the route of drugging someone to get them to court? Then you end up with all sorts of moral dilemmas. Say someone doesn't attend sentencing for a car theft. Do you do the same? What if Letby dies during the struggle, or worse still, seriously injures or kills a security guard? What would you then tell the guard's family? 
There are lots of things to think very carefully about with this. It is not as easy and straightforward as you think. In an ideal world, this individual would do the right thing and attend court. However, she has no problem with not being a decent human being. And that is from Vivian Tinkham in Ipswich. Now, a letter from Mark Sutcliffe from, in Bilderston. Uh, and he heads his letter, Battle for Our Survival, and writes, 2016 seems so long ago that I wrote to you about the likely perils of Brexit, also about the dangers inherent in supporting right-wing populist politicians like Trump and Johnson. Years later, with Trump and Johnson, and Brexit for that matter, in disgrace, I could say I told you so, but I won't. There is a war going on, not specifically the terrible conflict in Ukraine, although I feel that's part of it. I'm talking about the war between good and evil. Human beings are the most intelligent and aware animal ever to walk the earth, and yet some seem hell-bent on destroying it, or at least making it uninhabitable for our current civilization. A minority have seen the light and are crying out to the powers that be to act. Evil in the form of extreme greed is marshalling its forces to keep us to the wheel, consuming all in our path. The evils of intolerance, racism, sexism and othering are rife. I hope for the best, but fear the worst. We thought we had come so far, and some things are better than of old, but we must do more if this battle for the survival of humanity is to be won. Are you doing your part? This letter from John Scott came by email. With reference to your special report published in the Bury Free Press regarding Community Resolutions, CR, I found the points made extremely disturbing. I say this because, number one, CRs are not recorded nationally on the Police National Computer, PNC. Instead, the College of Policing Guidelines say these could be recorded on local systems and will not be disclosed as the result of a criminal records check. An offender can travel the country picking up CRs for crimes they commit. The Police and Crime Commissioner says he believes in people being given a second chance. How does he feel about them having chance after chance after chance? Who gets caught first time anyway? In some circumstances, an offender who already has a criminal conviction can still receive a CR. If anything, this procedure could increase crime. It seems to have been forgotten that the law should be a punishment and a deterrent. Whatever happened to the short, sharp shock? The real reason CRs are being used is that the police and criminal justice system cannot cope. Justice is not being done, let alone being seen to be done. Now, a letter from Vera Hughes, um, Barrison Edmonds, uh, headed, The country has suffered so much. When is this Tory government going to find a proper solution to dealing with people coming to Britain in the small boats? They may not be genuine people seeking to live in Britain. Those of them who complain or refuse to accept where they are offered should be sent to the nearest safe country, but they probably passed by getting to our country. British people need to have the right to demand a limit to be agreed on exactly how more we can cope with and not cause our own people to suffer extra hardship. We have had to suffer the Covid pandemic, having to choose about leaving the EU and all the things our own people are up, are up against right now, having somewhere to live that one can afford, a job that pays a decent wage one can live on, a health service that is suffering due to Tory bad management, 
ever-increasing food prices, gas and electric companies raking in high profits, scams out to rob people, products being sold online being unsafe to use, dental treatment now mostly privately run, longer waits to see your own doctors for just 10 minutes and lengthy delays in having vital operations carried out. So British people have more than enough to deal with right now. We need to see our present government sorting the growing problem of possible bogus arrivals out to enjoy a cosy existence here, paid for at taxpayers' expense. Why are these people risking death in order to get to Britain? Sort out this dire problem for all our sakes. How pleased I was to see that Lavin and Butchers are now imploring customers to pay them in cash rather than by card due to the high charges levied by banks on card transactions. On the BBC Breakfast programme recently, the host, Roger Johnson, surprised his co-host, Naga Manchetti, by saying that he always paid by cash and never card. The Lavenham Initiative follows the initiative of shops in Bury St Edmunds, again asking to be paid in cash. This was further amplified for us on a trip to Felixstowe, when, buying refreshments at a superb cliff-top kiosk, the proprietors prefer cash. Cards are often an inconvenience, especially if the Wi-Fi connection is erratic. There is a pub restaurant on the Shotley Peninsula near Ipswich, which, when it reopened the year before the pandemic, decided to be card only. For many years, it was a favourite dining pub, but I will never go into it again. The Covid pandemic hastened the imposition of restrictions and different ways of working by a government whose approach then is now being seen as deliberately controlling our everyday lives. Card payments, now so unnecessary, have only served to panic the public into the arms of the greedy and disgraceful banks. I myself have an abhorrence of too many businesses having access to my finances. The die may have been cast, but there is no reason why the public should not try and wrestle it back. Cash, remember, is still the legal tender of the UK. It should still be king. And that letter is from Graham Day in Stowmarket. Now, a letter from Anne and Michael Torrod uh, from Beris and Edmonds. Uh, Store closure was a sad day for the area, they say. Shopping at the Milden Hall Road Co-op was always enjoyable. The staff extremely helpful and friendly, not the hustle and bustle of big supermarkets. We shopped there ever since it opened, and the previous shop over and the previous shop over years. It's a sad day for people in that area, as it was so handy. Good luck to the managers and team for the future. And here's a very short letter from G.M. Snipe of Orford. Nadine Doris has resigned as an MP. As the late Windsor Davis, also known as Sergeant Major Williams, would say, Oh dear, how sad, never mind. Chocolate fire guards and ashtrays on motorcycles spring to mind. Let's uh, go back to some general news. A man who fled Austria on the eve of the Second World War has revisited the Suffolk village in which he lived when he first came to Britain. John Gilbert, now aged 93, came to Risby on August 19th and he stayed for the whole weekend. It marked the first time he had returned to the village for almost 80 years. Mr Gilbert was born Hans Goldstein in Vienna in 1929, the son of a Jewish father and a Catholic mother. Admitting uh, increasing hostility towards the Jewish population, Mr Gilbert and his mother escaped Austria at the beginning of 1939, 
and his father was able to join them in England shortly after. The family lived an unsettled life for some time, moving across the country. Mr Gilbert said, We went to Cornwall for a few months, where Mum and Dad worked as domestics. That was the only way you could get into England, if you were a domestic servant. My dad then got a job as a butler in Risby. I was there for a little while, and while we were there, my mum said, I want my son baptised, as I don't want him to be persecuted again. Mr Gilbert was subsequently baptised at St Giles Church. His family's stay in the village was fleeting, and Mr Gilbert has lived near Beverley, Yorkshire for much of his life, founding a successful business in adulthood. His return to Risby was a result of an unlikely sequence of events. His daughter was invited to Suffolk for a wedding, and Mr Gilbert said, I said to her, while you're there, why don't you go and have a look at Risby? Because that's where your dad first came to England, not speaking a word of English. She went to the church, and this lady came out. My daughter told her I used to go to the church, and then he went to the local school. The lady said, well, that's not a school anymore, that's my house. The woman at the church was Patricia House, who lives at the old schoolhouse, where Mr Risby was briefly educated. Her encounter with Mr Gilbert's daughter took place over three years ago before Covid, and it was only on Saturday that Mrs House was able to welcome the former resident back to Risby. She said, This has been the first time he, Mr Gilbert, could actually come to the village and see where he lived, for a relatively short time, actually. He's a very, very intelligent man. I think he's tremendous. Although not a local man, our editor has chosen to share this story with you. An Ipswich man who survived the Holocaust at Auschwitz in the Second World War has died at the age of 94. Frank Bright shared his incredible story with countless Suffolk schoolchildren over the years so that the horrors of the Holocaust are never forgotten. Mr Bright was sent to Auschwitz, aged 16, with his mother, just one week after his father had arrived at the camp. Neither of Mr Bright's parents would make it out of the camp alive. Mr Bright managed to avoid the gas chambers and he came to Britain after his liberation. He shared his story many times at schools around Suffolk and Essex. It has been confirmed he died on August the 16th. Michael Newman, chief executive of the Association of Jewish Refugees, said, The Association of Jewish, Jewish Refugees is deeply saddened to hear of the passing of a truly inspirational member, Frank Bright, MBE. Frank took night classes to become a civil engineer and dedicated much of his life to educate young people about the horrors of discrimination, hatred and genocide. We feel privileged to have captured his testimony as part of our Refugee Voices archive, a collection of life stories and experiences of Holocaust refugees and survivors. Frank was also a regular contribution to our journal and popular presence at our events. It means a lot to me to be able to tell my story to young people, Mr Bright told the East Anglian Daily Times in 2019. It is important that they understand what has happened in the past, and these are things they can't really understand from reading a book. Robert Halliday, a local historian with a particular interest in Bury St Edmunds, has written the following article specifically for News Talk, and we do hope you enjoy it. Uh, and it's entitled The Jenkins Smythe, Smith Smythe, I think, Memorial Service by Robert Halliday. The Jenkins Smythe Memorial Service, held every year in St Mary's Church, is one of Bury St Edmund's great traditions. 
Jenkins Smythe was a wealthy merchant and trader in Bury St Edmunds in the 15th century. His actual name was John, but he preferred to be called Jenkin, a medieval nickname. At that time the town was dominated by St Edmunds Abbey. The abbot and the monks would not let the townspeople have their own local government, with a mayor and corporation, and when a new abbot was elected, the townspeople had to give him a payment of sixty-six pounds, sixteen shillings and eightpence, called the abbot's cope, which they greatly resented. The merchants and traders of the town set up an organisation called the Candlemas Guild, a form of religious and social club where they could meet and discuss local business. Jankin Smythe reorganised the Candlemas Guild in such a way that it became an association where the townspeople could run their affairs. He set up a fund from his personal fortune to pay the abbot's cope. This kept everybody happy, as the abbot still got the £66.68, pence, but the townspeople no longer had to pay. Jankin also paid for the building of large parts of St Mary's Church. Jankin Smythe died in June 1481. He left much of his fortune to set up a trust in Bury St Edmunds. This is now known as the Guildhall Fiefment, involved in many things locally, including almshouses for elderly residents and the Guildhall Fiefment Primary School. A memorial service in Jenkins Smythe's honour is held in St Mary's Church every year. It now takes place on the 4th Thursday in June. In 2023, this was Thursday the 29th of June, the 542nd time it had been held the longest-running service of its kind anywhere in the world. It was attended by the Mayor, Diane Hind, the Corporation, trustees of the Guildhall Fiefment, and children from the Guildhall Fiefment Primary School. Afterwards, many of those attending the service walked to the historic Guildhall. In the Middle Ages, people often had meals of cakes and ale on special occasions. Cakes and ale are still served at the Guildhall for this occasion, although fruit juice is given to those who don't like alcoholic drinks. After everybody was served, they drank a toast to Jenkins Smythe, a lovely way to honour a man who did so much for Bury St Edmunds. And now for something completely different, here's a little bit of sports news with some news from the FA Cup. There was disappointment for Bury Town as their dream of an FA Cup run was burst when they were defeated 2-1 at home to Wroxham. There was better news for Stowmarket Town who progress into the first qualifying round of the FA Cup with a 2-1 home victory against Potton United. And another of our home teams is through to the next round as Milton Hall secured a 1-0 victory against Laken Heath. Now, Andy's 50-hour batting innings breaks a record carrying on with sport. It's as an innings any cricketer would be proud of, but one cricket coach from Needham Market has racked up more than 50 hours of continuous batting, all in aid of a good cause. Andy Northcote started his Guinness World Record attempt earlier this week and has raised more than £6,000 for Suffolk Mind. The previous record for continuously batting in a net was held by a man from Nagpur, India, at just over 50 hours. The 40-year-old completed 50 hours and 15 minutes of continuous batting from August the 22nd at Woolpit Cricket Club, with bowlers travelling across the county to support the challenge. It's the last in a series of four others completed this year, which included running a mile a day for 100 days, the Cambridge Half Marathon and the Paris Marathon. And the Needham Market resident is certainly bowled over by the support. Mr Northcote said, This challenge has been extremely tiring, 
but the support I've received through volunteer bowlers, donations and sponsorships has been overwhelming. Suffolk Mind does amazing work in supporting and raising awareness of mental health in the county, which is why they are my charity for 2023. Thank you to everyone who has made this possible and helped to support such an important cause. He chose to raise money for Suffolk Mind after hearing from Ollie Magnus, a sponsor of Suffolk Cricket and Suffolk Mind patron. Julie Long, fundraising manager of Suffolk Mind, said, Andy is, in, is an inspiration to us all and we are incredibly grateful of his support for Suffolk Mind. We are always amazed at the creative, creativity and tenacity of our fundraisers and to have raised such significant, significant amount of money for Suffolk Mind will have a hugely positive impact in Suffolk. We'd like to share a, a heartfelt thank you to Andy for his achievement and support and to everyone who donated. And local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor has trawled through his archive to find another Bury St Edmunds story from the past. And the headline is, Old Tower is a Survivor. Now standing forsaken and forlorn near to the St John's Ambulance First Aid Training Base in Nightingale Close, the Hospital Laundry Tower of 1895 has links to an unhappy part of the history of Bury St Edmunds, albeit tenuous, Jacqueline Close. The Suffolk General Hospital, as it was then known, opened in January 1826 on the site of a former Napoleonic military depot in Chevington Road, soon to be renamed Hospital Road, which once held 10,000 stands of arms. With the end of the Napoleonic Wars, a local committee came about, chaired by the Duke of Grafton, to provide a hospital for Bury and surrounding areas. The Suffolk General Hospital opened on January the 4th, 1826, funded by public donations, the first of which was £2,000 from Lord Bristol, and to begin with there were 50 inpatients. Later, the whole hospital was remodelled by St Peter's Church architect John Hakewell, four large wards having a capacity of 84 patients. A children's ward opened in April 1914, the year World War I started, and sadly, because of this conflict, numerous casualties were to be treated at the hospital. With another World War looming, agreements were met to start a further edition in October 1938, to be named after the President of the Hospital Board, the Marquis of Bristol, the Bristol Annex. There was also consideration given to one of the hutments near the Bristol Annex to be used for the increased laundry. With the building of a new hospital at Hardwick in 1974, apart from the Annex, which became the Cornwallis Court Residential Care Home, the site was surplus to requirements and was redeveloped. However, one element lingered on, the hospital laundry, which was accessed from Mill Road. After the war, the Hospital Management Board considered some of the land near the former Thingo Union Workhouse, which had become St Mary's Geriatric Hospital, for an expansion of their laundry. Fortunately for them, a knowledgeable local surveyor advised them not to touch this land. Eventually put up for auction in 1960, as it held dark secrets beneath, chalk mines. Thomas George Bullen, a local lime burner, had purchased nearby land called Pinner's Folly, I wonder why it gave, was given this name, in 1845, where the ill-fated Jacqueline Close would be built. 
These mines had been in use throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, and locals knew of them. However, a London-based firm, Tricord Developments, did buy the land, and in 1964, three-storey townhouses were built, starting at a cost of £4,250. A survey of the site had supposedly been given the all-clear. The rest, as they say, is history, as we regretfully now know that those houses would be compromised by the chalk mines, sadly resulting in demolition for all but two of the houses. As for the laundry site, further plans were scrapped, and the workings directly beneath the hospital site were then supposedly filled with fly ash from the Cliff Quay power station in Ipswich, though whether this happened is unclear. The laundry is no longer there, having closed down several years ago. Laundry from the West Suffolk Hospital is now contracted off-site. Amazingly, Jacqueline Close was classed as a brownfield site. In Vision 31, the blueprint of how the development of Bury St Edmunds would take place up to 2031. We're just going to finish with two bits of uh, general news. Um, Swim teacher Emma scoops prestigious award. A swimming teacher has been named National Star Teacher for helping children learn to swim. Emma Holland, who lives in Needham Market, has been teaching at Puddle Ducks, Suffolk, since 2017 and was handpicked by Mike Goody, eight-time Invictus Games gold medal winner, to receive this award. She said, I'm thrilled to have been nominated for this national award, let alone win. And then there's a new eatery poised for empty bills. A new Indian restaurant looks poised to open in Bury St Edmunds in a site recently vacated by another eatery. Mowgli Street Food is advertising for staff for its new Berry restaurant, but the company has not yet confirmed where it will be located or its opening date. However, its website says it's currently seeking an assistant manager and a junior sous chef, with both jobs listed as being located at 50 Abbeygate Street, which until earlier this month was occupied by Bills. Mowgli was founded by former barrister Nisha Katona, now a chef, author and TV personality, in, in 2015, it now boasts restaurants in Birmingham, Brighton, Cardiff, Cheltenham, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Cheshire Oaks, Leeds, Leicester, Liverpool, London, Manchester, Nottingham, Oxford, Preston and Sheffield. Mowgli has been contacted for comment. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from... David. Christian, Pat and Sue, it's goodbye. Bye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.com.
www.ofcom.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.